Well, hello, family. Hello. Good to see you. Are you ready for the good news? Amen. Me too. Grab your Bibles then. Open them up to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. We're going to start in verse 1 today. This is uh, the final message in our series. You know, kind of sad. I'm sure you guys are real sad too. Um, but you know what? It kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger because it sets us up uh, for the story of Abraham, which is in 12. And I've already preached through that, but that's kind of the point is it leaves us on kind of a cliffhanger today. The question that we're supposed to be asking as the readers is, is God really going to keep his promise to not wipe out the earth when humans disobey him? Because that was a big promise he made. And if, if he is going to keep his promise, if that's so, then what's God going to do instead when we rebel? This has got to do something, right? So God's got a little bit of a problem, I guess that he's put himself in. And so that's kind of the feel of what we're going to be talking about today. With that, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said... Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Almighty God, we thank you that there is no God like you. We thank you for your wonderful word that feeds us this bread of heaven, this spiritual food that we need, our spirit needs, even our body needs. So give us ears to hear. I pray and ask God that you would bless everyone here today. You have gifts every Sunday. You're the dispenser of great gifts through your word, through songs, through the prayers, through the benediction, through the uh, communion. You're giving gifts, food and medicine to all who come and partake. What a generous God you are to us who disobey. So Lord, would you speak to us now Change what we love and change what we're thinking about. It's in the sacred name of Jesus we ask it all. Amen. Amen. History is littered with people who desire to uh, rule the world, or at least a, a large portion of the world. Uh, we could talk about Julius Caesar. 
or Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, Stalin. They conquered people and they boasted in their greatness. I mean, even building large monuments to themselves, to their own reputation. But this desire to build a kingdom for yourself isn't limited uh, to political dictators or uh, military leaders. Not by a long shot. I mean, we could look at smaller examples and see how universal this uh, impulse is in humanity. We could look at the uh, ruthless co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, and his desire to, quote, make a dent in the universe. Or we could look at the Indian guru Rajneesh, who led his followers to build a secretive spiritual compound in Little Antelope, Oregon. But, you know, we could even take a take smaller examples, look at even smaller examples and just see how widespread uh, this is. If we're brave enough, we could look inside our own hearts and see this impulse is very much alive and well. We may not be able to make the world our kingdom, but we can make our workplace our kingdom under our dominion. Uh, We could make uh, our home our little kingdom. You know, some men and women, they treat their spouse, they treat their children uh, like they're either a mini Caesar of the kingdom or like Miss Hannigan in the musical Annie. Remember her? You're going to clean this dump till it shines like the top of the Chrysler building, Annie. That's how some people are. We can treat other people as if their lives are under our dominion. And it's real sneaky. I mean, we can can think of them like they actually exist for our glory. Like the reason that you've been put into my sphere of influence, the reason that you've been put on the planet is for me. That they exist for our name, for our reputation, so they will be the best. Because that's a reflection on me. They will be the brightest or the most beautiful, or most obedient, or whatever. We have a word for that. It's called narcissism. The Bible's been talking about that for thousands of years, though. See, the Bible exposes not only this impulse that we all have, but God's Word does us a double kindness by exposing what causes this impulse as well. Like, just ask the question, family. Why, why is it that, why do we want to build great monuments? Why do we want to conquer great problems, build great families, and be known for making things great? Why do we want to do that? Well, Genesis 11 tells us the answer. It's because we want our life to really matter. And it's because we want our life to endure forever. Let me say it again. This comes because we want our life to really matter and we want to live forever. That's why. In other words, each one of us has a deep desire for legacy and eternity baked into our very being. In the text today, we're going to see how we attempt to satisfy this desire for a legacy that endures. And then we're going to see what God has done to satisfy it, curiously enough. 
So first, we this desire uh, that we're talking about, we arrogantly displace God to build for ourselves a legacy in eternity. This is our way, ultimately, of trying to satisfy this itch. We displace God to build for ourselves a legacy in eternity. Uh, it's here in the text. Go with me to verse 3 and 4. And this is, this is the people, this is humanity talking. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Doesn't that wording sound real familiar? That, that wording should trigger us to earlier parts of Genesis if we've been paying attention. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Just like in the account of Cain, once again, we see people uh, that uh, make these technological advancements that help people overcome the curse of the fall. See, there aren't any stones around in this plain, plain of Shinar is what it says. Uh, So they're going to make for themselves the next best best thing for a building, since you don't have stones. Stones are the best. They're going to make the next best thing. Bricks and mortar. Problem solved. Nature conquered. Right? They're going to live wherever they feel like living. Thank you very much. And this brick technology is going to allow them to do just that. But alas, this technological advancement is implemented to disobey God, not to obey God. Remember, God has plainly commanded people to be fruitful, to multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Because God says that's a good thing. We're supposed to cultivate the earth, the world. The people of Shinar say, no, we're tired of moving. We're tired of migrating across this big land mass. We're done with that. We don't want to be dispersed over the earth. We're going to stop our migration. We're going to settle down right here, and we're going to build ourselves a big mighty, great city. The way that the text reads, this decision is clearly one of defiance against God. See, humans are band together, and they decide for themselves what is good and what is not good. What does Genesis 1 tell us? Only God decides what's good and not good for people. But they said, no, this is good for us, and this is what we're going to do. So understand, this is a communal, large-scale human project that they undertake. The crowning prize of this master-planned city, this master-planned community, is this tower. And they describe it by saying it's a tower whose top is in the heavens. Like, you can't see the top. Are you guys picturing this? This is not a skyscraper. A skyscraper is way too small. You understanding what we're doing here? This is a big project. It takes every, everyone to band together to do this. The word that in Hebrew for tower is, is called migdal, and it's related to, the, to a similar word called great, and they kind of inform one another. So in other words, they are planning to pool their collective resources and build a monstrosity of a tower, the likes of which have never been seen before on the planet. That's what they're doing. 
amygdala or tower is used uh, in the book of Isaiah to represent strength or pride of a nation. Isn't that interesting? Look how great our nation is. And we did it. We made it great. Isaiah talks about that. Actually, God does through Isaiah. Additionally, they don't want to just build a massive edifice to show the world how strong they are. The text literally says, and its peak will dwell in the heavens. That's where it's going. They're not going to stop till it gets up to the heavens. This monument to their great name will share space with the gods because who else could be their peer but gods? Are you hearing what they're saying? All right, like we don't think that way, do we? Or talk that way as people, right? No, no. Yeah, they're going to share this with God. They're going to displace God himself with this secure, great, mighty achievement. All the people of the world, they're going to look at the citizens of Shinar and go, wow, oh my gosh, if we could be like them. They're setting the pace, Right? All the people of the world are going to be forced to acknowledge that they and they alone, through their efforts, have made the world great again after the flood. The Shinars did that. You can thank us for that. And they clearly say that their motivation for building this great society and monument is to make a great name for who? Themselves. Not their neighbor themselves their names on all of it they want everyone to know the name Shinar Shinar but the irony is by the end of this story they are known forever as what Babel right Babel also known as Babylon what do all the people in the world want you and me too. What do all the people in the world want? They want a name that will matter. And they want to live forever. Not be dispersed and forgotten. Remember forever. Don't you see yourself a little bit in this, in them? You should. I do. You know, wanting to make, make a name for yourself? Maybe not this big, but you know what I'm saying, in your little pond. I want people to know that I existed. And I want, I want to know that, them to know that what I did with my life when they're given my eulogy mattered. It mattered. This is often what drives us to be the best especially as Americans. It's baked into our culture. We cannot, we just cannot live with being merely good at something or, God forbid, merely proficient. <laughs> History doesn't remember the proficient, we're told all the time. Only the excellent, only the champions, only the best, only the top. See, we have to be the best because only then do you stand out from the nameless, faceless crowd, right? Only the best have their names and lights. Only the best 
get their face on monuments or baseball cards or quoted in newspapers that millions of people see. I mean, we'll even settle for being internet famous. <laughs> you know, crewing a few thousand followers on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok by making clever little videos and making cl saying clever little things and clever little retorts and comebacks to other clever little people in your cleverly little curated world of Twitter. Isn't that clever? Brothers and sisters, listen. Underneath our desire to be great is it's actually fear. Did you hear me? It's fear. Your fear wears lots, of wears lots of faces, just so you know. It's a shapeshifter. Fear is under this. Fear of being anonymous. Fear of being insignificant. Everything I did in my life was a vapor and insignificant and didn't make a difference. And I got to constantly like fight against I'm afraid of that. That's what's underneath this most of the time. If we're being really honest, we are, and the older you get, the worse this gets, we are deeply afraid that, that the story of our life is going to read like this in the funeral parlor. We came, we saw, we lived, we died, and nobody cared. Someone asked, it was on a daytime talk show, asked J.K. Rowling, you know, the author. It was on Halloween, and everyone's dressed up like, you know, Harry Potter. And they're, you know, you know how, how daytime TV, oh, keep it light and bubbly and, you know, four ways to make, you know, candy corn, whatever. And they asked her, they go, what do you want to be for Halloween? What do you think is the scariest thing? You know, what's, what's your biggest nightmare? Someone said, I don't know, a ghost or this or that. You know what she said? You know what she said? What I would be probably what scares me the most? She said, being insignificant. And it was silence on a daytime talk show. Like, never happens. They're like, okay. It's true. We want immortality, and that only happens if people continue to remember your name and say your name. So we work hard day after day, night after night to make a reputation for ourselves that nobody will be able to forget. Nobody will be able to ignore it. I want to make sure of that. Some of us want the reputation or the name Great Dad. So we're really afraid if someone says, you know, my dad was a deadbeat. And that's the title we want. Some of us, we want this, uh, the great name, most understanding, supportive wife, or most successful at work, or the inventor of fill in the blank. Some of us want to be known as the guy who gets things done. Oh, Jojo, man, he's the guy that gets things done. That's his name. That's his great reputation. The guy gets things done. Or, or, or maybe the guy that never backs down to management. Or the guy that doesn't really care about his feelings. Just ignores it and just kind of blows on through life. Just drives the bus over people. Because that's 
how you become great in the eyes of others in our little community or our little world. That is how you matter there. And we figured that out. So if you are honest, what reputation, what name do you want for yourself right now? Don't say it out loud, but please ask the question. What do you hope other people remember about you when your time is up here? Now, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and there's nothing wrong with having big dreams or wanting to accomplish something, even big things, nothing wrong at all. But there is a huge problem with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is this. I'm doing this to make a name for me. Not you. Me. That's the difference. That's the big difference. In her book, None Like Him, uh, Bible teacher Jen Wilkins explains it this way. She says, quote, human beings created to bear the image of God instead aspire to become like God. Desi excuse me, designed to reflect his glory, we choose instead to rival it. And we do so by reaching for those attributes that are true that are true only to God. Those suited only to a limitless being. Close quote. This is why selfish ambition, listen guys, is dangerous. You know, we hear a lot about on the news what's a dangerous idea. Here's what the, God's word says is dangerous. This right here, selfish ambition. It is our attempt to displace God from his throne and put ourselves in his seat. Once we displace God in our hearts, however, we find out that we must become God. We must be God over our life. And the problem is that requires incredible amounts of energy and time and resources, day and night and day and night. You know, kind of like building a huge tower. I mean, once you start, you can't stop till it's done, right? You know, God's the only one that's eternal. He's the only one with a truly great name. Only he has worth of full devotion and worship, constant worship. Indeed, now we know it. So we've got to keep building and building and building and building and building and sucking up resources and sucking up resources and building. It's a never-ending slog. It started out feeling like a fun project, and now it's just like, I cannot wait to finish this house. You ever felt that way? I know some of you have. What we're doing, each one of us are doing that with our life and our legacy. See, ultimately making your name great, listen to me, it will crush you and it will crush everyone else around you that's in your blast zone. Okay? Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? Do this if you're hearing me. Okay? You hearing me? But we see in the text that God has done something about this desire. And it's really curious to me. It's not what you think he's going to do. 
Check this out. God gently disperses us to give us a legacy and eternity with him. Let me say it again. God gently disperses us to give us a to give us a legacy and eternity with him. Now, before we get into this, before we can accurately understand what God's actions are, what he actually did, we need to understand his heart. We need to understand his motivation first, or we'll get that part wrong, okay? So let's go to verse five real quick. And this is like, it's nine verses. And if it's written, like, it's written like this, like a tower. It's interesting. This verse five is the peak point. It's the actual center point of the story. Builds up to five and then it flows down. The author is saying this is the most important verse to interpret the whole thing. I just think it's kind of cool. It's like a little point too because it's talking about a tower. He says, and the Lord came down to see. The Lord, I get a picture. Of him. He's coming down <laughs> or he's bending down. He's coming down. He comes down to see what? The city and this tower that's supposedly getting closer to him. Right? Which the children of man had built. Do you see the picture that the author is showing us between God and humanity? The humans are they're on they're in China, they're on the face of the earth, and they are boasting loudly. They're bragging about this monstrosity of a city and a tower that they are constructing. Biggest one ever. <laughs> and it's so huge that its peak will dwell with the gods. Like, the, like it's going to take up heaven real estate. They're gonna, the gods are going to have to move out of the way for this tower. That's how big this thing is. And, and, and everyone on the planet will be able to see it. That's, how, that's why it's got to be high. Everyone from every nation will see what the, little, the nation of Shinar is doing, the Shinarians are doing, because they can't not look at it. It's the biggest, right? And they're going to see how great they are. They're going to be forced to say how great you are when they see it. But God, who created the heaven and the earth and humans, he's got to come down to see their city and tower. Isn't that interesting? Like, in God's eyes, from God's point of view, it's actually so small that God is forced, not to say how great it is, he's forced to get closer to it and squint to make out what all the noise and hullabaloo is about. <laughs> It's like Horton is like, where's this who? And this who is shouting on the thistle, right? That's us. And he's like, what? Well, that's what God's doing. He's like, oh, they got trumpets and they're making, they're having a parade and a big deal over something they've done. You get the picture? They think of themselves as children of the gods, equal to the gods, right? And God sees them as the children of man. Now, let's be clear. God is not mocking the rebellious actions of humanity. God is taking their building project very seriously, and the consequences that are going to come from that, he's taking that very seriously too. He's not blowing this off. Okay, this is important to understand. Yet, at the same time, God is not threatened by what they're doing in the slightest. He's big. And people are small. God, look at this. God is more concerned about what will happen, not to him, 
There's nothing going to happen to him. God's more concerned about what will happen to humanity if they succeed in displacing him. Are you tracking with me? That's his concern. Listen, my point is, whatever the motivation for confusing people's language is, all I'm saying is there's some options that are completely off the table. It's not because of rage. It's not because of fear or some sense that humans are about to actually displace him as the sovereign of the world. He's not worried about that. He is concerned about something different. You and me, if we actually get what build what we want to build. That's what moves them into action. Do you see the love of God here? Look at, look at, let's go to the verses now, seven and eight, okay? He says, now the wording, it, it matches the other two verses that we read earlier. There's a lot of parallelism here. He says, come, let us go down. They say, come, let us build, as if they're the Trinity. And the Trinity says, come, let us go down. And confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. God went, and the dandelions went, the seeds went, the people, right? God dispersed humanity across the whole face of the earth by confusing their unified language. I don't know if that means that's like a lot of languages came out of that, or if it's still one language, but it's lots of dialects that they didn't understand. But he confused it. And it's pretty an interesting way in which he decided to like mess up this building project, okay? Because there's a lot of ways you could do it. Listen, when you don't understand the people that you are living next to eventually that gets frustrating, right? Even if you're speaking the same language, if you're speaking a different dialect, you know what I'm saying? Doesn't that get frustrating after a while with people that you work with and people that you go to school with and people that you go to church with and people that you next to? You're speaking the same language and they're speaking a language you're like, you look at the bumper stickers they have in the car, the shirts that they're wearing, or the messages that they're putting out, and you're like, what are you saying? What are you, what are you talking about? We don't know what that's like right now, do we? How can you say that? How can you think that? What? I don't understand. I don't understand. You ever said that in the last like you know year and a half? I don't understand. I thought I knew you. I wish this was relevant to our life. This old thing called the Bible. But look, after a while, doesn't that like it makes it impossible to have relationships with people? Right? It's frustrating. It grinds community down. And, and you know what? Eventually, you want to migrate. All of a sudden, you didn't want to migrate because it was nice here. Now you're like, I'm going to migrate. Let's get back on the migrating plan. God will not allow humanity to be unified around the greatness of humanity. And there is some migrating going on. I, I don't know. It's not my notes. I always get in trouble when I go in my notes. I'm just going to leave it there. Working to give yourself a legacy and eternity. Let's bring it back. Working to give yourself a legacy and eternity will only bring disillusionment in the end. If you've felt disillusioned lately, God has a better plan for us. It is a plan to do good to us and not to harm us. And so... God responds to the disobedience of humans and the arrogance of people 
wanted to make something great by dispersing humanity across the world, across the earth. He drives them out of Shinar, which is, which is going to be renamed Babel. And the wording of the story is really interesting to me because it mirrors the wording of the Eden story. Remember, remember that? Why did God drive Adam and Eve, who disobeyed him, out of the garden that he planted for them? Why did he do it? He tells us, lest they reach out their hand and eat from the tree of life and live in that state forever, right? Why does God prevent humanity from completing their project and drive them out? Because out there is where they ought to be. Lest they accomplish what they want and live in that terrible state the rest of their life. And God doesn't want that for people. For what, what state? What terrible state? Forever working to make a name for yourself. Forever working to make your name great. Forever working to give yourself eternal life instead of resting with him. And that's what he wants for me and you. You see, you see, when we really look at this and we really read this story slowly, we see that God's dispersion is actually an act of kindness. It's an act of kindness. You see, if he disperses people, they won't destroy themselves and his world. If he disperses them, guess what? Since they're not been destroyed, they've been dispersed, not destroyed. If he does this, guess what? He can go out and find them and gather them back up. You know, like lost sheep. And gather them back up from all the corners of the world. God's dispersion is an act of gentle kindness, which I think is part of the fruit of the Spirit, if I'm not mistaken. Gentleness and kindness. God looks at all the people making a concerted effort to defy and to displace him as God. He looks down. He sees it. He sees what, what we're doing. And instead of shooting canisters of hot pepper spray into the streets to disperse the crowds, because this is what this is, is a riot, or worse yet, sending another flood or sending fire, raining down fire and brimstone and just starting all over again, God chooses, God chooses to simply make them misunderstand each other. <laughs> make it impossible for us to cooperate on our global suicide project. Pretty gentle dispersion tactic, I would say of all the available options from a deity, wouldn't you agree? Man, guys, God is keeping his promise. He's keeping his promise to Noah, to what? Not destroy the earth again. Even when he's got every good reason to do so. God has a rescue planned in mind, and he's going to do the rescue mission. Here is the good news of God in Genesis. God is not against us. 
Though he could be, God is not against us. God is for us. Listen to me. The very thing that you and I want so deeply for our lives to matter and for us to live forever, God actually wants to give that Did you hear me? I want to say that again. The very thing that you and I want most deeply for our life to have mattered and for us to live forever, God actually wants to give that to you in me. You don't believe me? You look like, you're looking at me like you don't believe me. All right, I'll, I'll prove it, all right? Listen. Right after this account comes what? Chapter 12, right? Right after this account, God makes a promise to a man named Abram. And God, you got to remember this, this is deity. God says something crazy to Abram, a human, a pagan, a moon worshiper. Listen to what he says. Listen, this is how ridiculous. It's so amazing. Genesis 12, verse 2. God says, and I will make of you what? A great nation, and I will bless you and what? Make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. That promise, I've always heard it has been great. It's never staggered me till I really studied chapter 11. Do you believe me now? The very thing the people of Babel wanted to make for themselves, God plainly says he is going to give as a free gift to Abram. God is going to make Abram's name great and anyone else united to his God by faith in his God. Isn't that crazy? You see the heart of, the, the heart of God here in this? Good news, brothers and sisters. God doesn't want to wipe you out for wanting a name that matters and for wanting eternal life. He's not upset about the want. He didn't correct the want, does he? He just corrects on how we're trying to do it. God has actually put that desire in each person. He wants us to find that desire filled through him and in him. That's what Ecclesiastes says. He's put eternity in the hearts of all men. God put it there. Listen, God came down at Shinar to confuse the children of men and to disperse them so that they would not destroy themselves. But listen, listen, God came down another time to the children of men, did he not? And not to disperse them that, this time, but to gather them up as one people. His people, one flock and one shepherd, right? And to keep his promise that he made long ago to Abram. John 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believe what? 
in his name, that means character, nature, reputation, in his name, he gave the right to become, say it, children of God. Children of God. What name could be greater and higher and more exalted than be called a child of God, a son of God? It is a name that God places on us, not a mere mortal. There's a book that I read last year about uh, evangelism. And uh, yeah, it was about a year ago. And Ravi Zacharias wrote the foreword to that. And the author quotes her times with him throughout the book. And I bought some more copies of that to share. For the last 20 years, his name was a name that everybody wanted on their books and on their personal resumes. I knew, I learned from Zacharias. I want his blurb and his endorsement and his name on my book. But on the most recent copies that I've bought, I noticed that the publisher quietly and unannouncedly Remove the name of Ravi Zacharias and the entire foreword, and I'm sure mentions of his name throughout the book if I, would, if I was an editor. Because no Christian now wants to be associated with that name anymore. Someone who was expected to have an enduring legacy of global greatness in our circles was found out to be a colossal hypocrite and quite wicked. That great name that he made for himself was quickly was scrubbed quicker than you could blink an eye. Selfish ambition. It's dangerous. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has given you a name. He's just given it. You didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to build it. Jesus has given you a name that is better, a name better than any that the children of man could bestow upon you or publishing company or boss or nation. God has shared with us his own glorious name. Son of God. Isn't that what they call Jesus? Son of God? Son of God. Yeah, men and women. It's a theological category. Son of God. Like Jesus. And guess what? Listen to me. That name's going to age well. That name's going to age real well. It's an everlasting name. It's a name that will not be tarnished. Praise God. You will not need to remove it later on. You will not need to knock it down or tear it down. It will, it's a name that will endure forever and ever. Isn't Jesus good? He loves you. I love you too. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. Sweetest name I know.
though we sin against you, though we work so hard to make a name for ourselves and to make ourselves great, God, you choose to be so gentle to us and kind. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us in Christ. Oh God, the blessing we've received today, would you help us share with others that need it, that are working so hard, day and night like a building project to make a name for themselves so they won't be forgotten. Help us share with them to turn to Jesus. You will not be forgotten. You will be immortal, not because of you, but because of him who is risen from the dead forever and will never die again is immortal. And we endure and reign with him. And it's his, in his high, lofty name we pray. Amen.